They're major economic drivers in any region. How are those being connected with investments in local entrepreneurship, ensuring that their vehicles increase access to capital through vehicles like community development and financial institutions? It's not just about supply and demand in the labor market. It's also about the communities in which employers and employees reside. Inclusive plans, invest in local community assets. The benefits of investments in those areas encourages neighborhood vibrancy and local economic economic growth. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo. And this is The Future of Work. Today, we have Joel Vargas, Vice President of Programs at Jobs for the Future, talk with our host, Salvatrice Kumo, about his bold and mission-driven approach in accelerating the alignment and transformation of the workforce and educational systems to ensure access to economic advancement for all. Let's get started. Welcome back to The Future of Work. I am your host, Salvatrice Kumo, and with me today... I have Mr. Joel Vargas, Vice President of Programs at Jobs for the Future. Welcome, Joel. Thanks, Salvatrice. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you. I know we've had a chance to kind of chit-chat a little bit before the podcast, but for our listener who is not aware of who you are and what does Vice President of Programs mean at Jobs for the Future, we'd love to learn more about you know, your background and your role. What would you like to share with us as it relates to your background and how you got here with Jobs for the Future? JFF's work is as a national nonprofit organization. My office is out here in Oakland, California, where we opened an office in 2014. But all of our work nationally is about designing and scaling up solutions that can transform our education and workforce systems so that more people get the skills and credentials they need to advance economically, and that employers get the talent that they need to help grow our economy. So that's our mission. I am one of three program vice presidents at the organization. I'm a leader on programmatic strategy, on innovation, on fundraising, because we're a nonprofit, so we always, we're never done fundraising, on the development and the coaching of our division leaders. I make sure generally speaking, that our work is really on point with our mission and strategy and that projects are positioned to leverage each other optimally and strategically. Also, one of my duties is to oversee much of our published content. And if you go to our website, www.jff.org, 
You'll see we do a lot of published content because we're t- we try to influence the field to adopt and adapt best practices. One of my jobs is to ensure our published content is of high quality and is in a position to influence. I started at the organization 19 years ago, and a common thread in my work uh, throughout that time, even though my duties have diversified and grown, has been about advancing strategies that can change the structure of high schools so that they're more integrated with college and career, that they're really structured in that way to improve outcomes for youth who've been really historically underserved by our education and workforce systems. So that's been a common thread in my work, and it's included initiatives like early college high school, which you may have heard of, or policies and practices like dual enrollment. In reference to your work on the importance of helping underrepresented students, why has that been kind of a focus of your work for, you know, helping our underrepresented students successfully move through post-secondary education? It's been a personal thing and obviously a professional passion and mission of mine as well. They're kind of bound up with each other. I was a first-generation college goer. Grew up in San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. Grew up up in the city. Yeah, we go. We should go. We go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We just keep keep going. That's that's right. And we want to give back, too. I mean, I I see you doing that in your role. I worked hard as a kid, and I, I really was successful by virtue, you know, in hindsight of really being in the right places at the right times to get access to learning opportunities you know, and relationships that, that got me in a position, even through some tough times to persist in my education. So in hindsight, you know, there, there are just way too many systemic stumbling blocks that I had to overcome to make it, where so many of my equally, if not even more talented peers did not, you know, because those those stumbling blocks are there for us who haven't had to navigate on our own before, you know, because our parents didn't do it. That's why I started my career in small college prep programs, uh, like the one I grew up in that changed my life. It was called at the time Summerbridge, San Francisco. It's now called Breakthrough with uh, replication sites around the country. And I helped to start up a couple of those in my career as well. But it was really, you know, I I wanted to try to help up-and-comers get the help that I got to navigate the obstacles and the stumbling blocks. But that work of doing 100 students at a time in any given year, while it was gratifying and, and certain, you know, definitely important, it wasn't fast enough. It wasn't systemic enough. I saw too many students, including those with whom we worked who graduated from our programs, pushing a rock up a hill, you know, of the systems that like were working downhill against them to send the rock back down on them. Sorry for the horrible metaphor, but that's what it could feel like. (laughs) I get you. you, Yeah. So I wanted to think about more systemic solutions. So I went to grad school, (laughs) studied, studied policy, organizational change strategies that that could address some of these barriers more systemically and at scale. And then fortunately, when I was done, near being done, I landed at JFF, which at the time was advancing a variety and still does a variety of change strategies focused on systems change in our education and workforce development systems. And and the initiative that I got into at the time was we were on the ground floor of helping partners in the field to develop early college high schools, which enabled students from low-income backgrounds to earn an associate's degree by the time they finish high school. And it research has shown over time, it was a, it's a powerful way to increase college completion simply by virtue of what these schools did, which was to remove the boundaries between high school and college for first-generation students. So anyway, long answer to your question. That's It's been gratifying for me. And as I said, I still carry on kind of that kind of work 
as well as other related work at JFF. You know, you hit on something that you and I work through every single day, which is our systems, right? We have our educational systems, then we have our workforce development systems. And sometimes they're very hard to get in sync, almost painfully hard. In your work, you know, you've had some really great successes in your programming and Would you be able to share really kind of like what does effective solution design look like for you? How do you approach effective solution designing in developing programs? Well, we've learned a lot over the years, as you would expect us to, as we should, right? So so that we're able to do it better every time we go out uh, in the course of our almost 40 years of existence. First of all, it takes good solutions take time to get visible as things that the system should be doing as a norm, you know? So any innovation really does. And Given my 19-year tenure at JFF and, you know, this innovation of early college schools and incorporating college and career into high school, you know, as an intervention, it has gotten a lot of momentum, but it is far from the norm of what we see in our systems still. So you have to be patient, got to stick to it. Doesn't mean you have to stay at the same organization. (laughs) You know, the whole time, but it does take a number of years and it takes allies to do that well, in fact. So, but in terms of design, you know, what we emphasize is making sure that whatever you're doing, first of all, aligns to the needs of the labor market locally, taking advantage of increasingly sophisticated and real time labor market information systems. But so many people kind of build programs that are based on just on relationships or what they know. And it really ought to be more systematic than that. And then, you know, providing students with clear connections to careers by integrating learning and work. You know, those two things should go hand in hand. And try to develop solutions where you're reducing and accelerating time and helping students accelerate their path to a post-secondary credential. Offering the credit for the knowledge and skills they acquire, not just the time they spend in class in a seat. Help them build relational skills so that they know how to learn. So learning how to learn is is really important because we don't know what jobs are going to look like 20 years from now, much less 10 or 5. So that is an important human skill to cultivate that's that's unique that we can somewhat argue AI has it. I, I don't believe it yet, not like humans can do. So we, we do have to foster that in students, especially in the face of you know increased automation and AI. They have to be able to do work computers cannot. I would just add a couple of other things, you know, opportunities within those designs to build social capital and extend their social capital to folks that they normally wouldn't have connections to, new people, new employers, resources, and then making sure that they're wraparound supports by making sure you leverage community partnerships, making sure that there's financial access to whatever opportunity young people have to make sure it's within reach and that they can get the support they need to succeed. And all of that has really kind of been turned upside down with the pandemic. We know that, right? We know that everything got turned upside down. And I wonder if those topics still exist, you know, wraparound support, network, community of learning, et cetera. And I'm curious if your understanding of the learning system has changed because of the pandemic and, you know, what have you uncovered during this time in working with academia and working with industry and through your role? Well, I have to say that it reinvigorated my faith and admiration for educators for their ability to really adapt quickly to a big shift in their reality. What y'all ended up having to do and <laughs> um, turning on a dime and things that people weren't really used to. It wasn't always perfect, I know, and you know, can't wait to kind of 
go back to a little bit more normalcy. But the people in the systems really did respond. And I would say maybe it's opened our eyes to new ways of doing some things that some of which, you know, might be better. We shouldn't be shy in the after pandemic times. I am going to stay with this theme to make bigger shifts in how we conceive of teaching and learning where it can happen. I think we were quite limited in the before times of thinking about, you know, with some exception, where you get education, quote unquote, you know, go to a building for a defined amount of seat time, receive knowledge, move through systems that kind of have these false divides between learning and working or technical knowledge and yeah, and barriers, Mm -hmm. real barriers Mm -hmm. for credit, not for credit, even between high school and college level learning. There were so many students who stopped out. I hope we can get them back because they had to make a choice between learning and living. They didn't feel like they could afford the investment and time in learning. And we need to change that. You know, the systems need to be designed so that they don't feel like they have to make that dire choice. And I think what that looks like is we got to speed it up for them with support, with proper support. Don't slow it down. There's no time for that. We need, you know, learn and earn strategies like apprenticeship. You know, people are earning while learning and they don't have to stop one to do the other necessarily. Competency-based education progression strategies, credit for prior learning. You know, again, getting away from just you need to be in a seat for a certain number of hours to get the credit. Won't be surprised to hear me say this, early college experiences for high school students. There are innovations in like work-based courses, you know, partnerships between employers and colleges. So again, that learn and earn theme. This is a little more radical, but I, I do think we do need to expand the ecosystem or systems um, or institutions where people can do their learning and get their learning validated. How might that look like? There's just one example of this. They're now with Southern New Hampshire University, and it's called LRNG. And it is a platform and more than just a platform, but a set of partnerships that are usually based in a community where partners can use their platform to develop credit-based learning experiences. That might be, you know, community service projects, some kind of design experience. I only know enough to, you know, have enough knowledge to be dangerous, as they say. (laughs) Uh, My understanding is then they, they figure out a way to credit that knowledge and that learning. It's pretty new. It's experimental, but they're trying something that I think really does embody the spirit of we need to encourage learning in places where it can authentically happen best. And that is not always in the traditional classroom. So we need to figure out ways to do that. I also think we need to really rethink the gatekeepers that slow down unnecessarily, you know, students and limit their access to credit and opportunities like, you know, and developmental education sequences that are really long. And we know that many students ended up being placed in them due to placement tests, and they could have done well had they not been placed in those and just placed in credit-bearing courses. So it's an example just, you know, trying to make sure the inclination and bias is to speeding things up with support, like through co-requisite courses. We need to continue down that road now more than ever in recovering from the pandemic here and trying to get young people and older people caught up. So speaking of recovery, Last November, from what I understand, Jobs for the Future issued out, you know, a set of policy recommendations for the Biden administration on equitable economic recovery. And one of the main recommendations was to revitalize regional economies in an inclusive manner to produce 
sustainable growth for everyone. I want to talk about what that really means and how that really reflects on the San Gabriel Valley region, specifically where I'm in or we are in. It's a region of about 2 million with every industry you could possibly think of, retail, restaurants, hospitality, manufacturing, et cetera, and pockets of innovation like JPL, Caltech, and large populations of Asian and Latinos in the demographics. I know it's a lot, but having said all that, what steps should we be considering to collectively create an economic development leadership in the region and drive really this equitable economic recovery for all? Yeah, I really appreciate this question. And increasingly, we're supporting communities and and regions, especially in California, to grapple uh, with these issues. I, I would say, you know, with the caveat that we're not helping in San Gabriel Valley, but I would also say we don't have all the answers here, but there would be a set of questions we would be asking of you and other leaders and helping you to answer, you know, on this kind of journey. And you said, you know, sorry, real complicated, long question. That's just, the, that's the way of the world, right? I mean, it's it's really tough. And, and it's, these are the issues that we have to contend with. So, you know, first, I would just say, you know, in our approach, inclusive outcomes cannot be achieved without an inclusive process, in our view. So I would imagine in addition to the talented and resourceful employers, you know, government officials, local government leaders, colleges, and universities who you typically would think are contributing to a regional economic recovery agenda anywhere. But I know you had a lot of those in the San Gabriel Valley. At the table, are there also various regional economic coalitions and partnerships? Are there the voices of underrepresented, of the underrepresented there, like small businesses in some of the more distressed communities? Um, Are there community-based organizations and Is there community leadership representation that engages in the larger discussions around plans and contributes to those? Are you partnering with neighborhood advocates, you know, even giving them resources to come to the table? Driving at is involve historically excluded groups in the design, the decision making and implementation of these strategies, because too often those economic development approaches have left communities behind or even displaced, right, by gentrification, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they've left them distrustful of these kind of efforts. So you need to build that trust back up. So that'd be one question. And then just two more. Well, this is a statement, not a question. Why is that, (laughs) you know, we think that economic development really has to go hand in hand with community development and focus on the place-based conditions that impact economic mobility. It's not just about supply and demand in the labor market. Creating jobs is about that, but it's also about communities and the communities in which employers and employees reside. Inclusive plans invest in local community assets like infrastructure, environment, housing, transportation, education. The benefits of investments in those areas accrue to job creators, the job seekers, and the multi-generational households that are part of the fabric of the community. You know, and it encourages neighborhood vibrancy and local economic growth. So it's important, again, like in this vein, to have public agencies and organizations that touch those place-based issues at the table when doing economic development plans like HUD, like health and human services, city planning departments, et cetera. That's the final thing I'll say, because I I think this gives you a flavor of our approach here. There are major economic drivers in any region, definitely 
in this region, things like Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Lab. How are those being connected with investments in local entrepreneurship, you know, ensuring that their vehicles increase access to, to capital through vehicles like community development and financial institutions? connecting angel investors and business incubators. I think I asked around, I think I know, but like some, some uh, an organization called Pasadena Angels and Venture Launch, they focus on uh, inclusive entrepreneurship. That's the idea, making more resources available to more people and accessible for all kinds of businesses and entrepreneurs, enlisting organizations like the Hispanic Chamber to target resources to groups that need access to this kind of capital. That's the kind of approach or as I say, the questions we would be asking you and helping you to answer in uh, developing the plan and, and executing. Through your discovery, is there anyone kind of doing this work that you're speaking of, of the connectivity that really excites you that you think, hey, Salvatrice, like you really ought to pay attention to this organization or this person who's doing this work and perhaps influences your work as well? Well, first of all, I mean, you know, JFF does this kind of work. So shameless self-promotion moment. If you think we can be helpful, we always, but you know, one of the things, one of the things we say to folks when we come in and work with them is our job is not to stay there forever. It's to be a catalyst and actually to help the community leaders develop their own sustained partnerships Mm. to carry on this kind of work. Because at the end of the day, that's what needs to happen in order to, you know, these kinds of changes just take a long time. And so you can't count on any single convener per se, especially someone who's saying, well, we don't, we don't live there. I mean, we're, we're in Oakland, but that's, that's a ways away. And I think any good intermediary organization like ours or, you know, who convenes, facilitates, they're really, their role ought to be as a, as a catalyst, you know, and in capacity building. So like building your capacity, your organization you as a leader of that organization, your partner organizations and their leaders to do this kind of cross-sector work. And you don't necessarily need one organization to make that happen. The answer is yourselves. Sometimes we understand it helps to have a helper. Right, know, right. Facilitate dialogue. And sometimes, you know, connecting the dots because we're so close to it that more likely than not, it is wonderful to have a facilitator really kind of look at it through their lens to connect the dots around what you just shared about community development, talent development, angel investors, you know, the programming that's happening around the entrepreneurship, this ecosystem that we're in here in Pasadena and the San Gabriel Valley area. So I find tremendous value in it. And I'm thankful that you're sharing that because it's one thing to really say, yes, you know, the folks here on the ground need to really kind of connect and do it together and map it out. But it's another thing where you have someone kind of navigating the dialogue and that's incredibly helpful. Yes, we agree. So it has to be both. And and just to mention something else that might be of interest to you is, um, and others who are listening is we sponsor something called the California Future Ready Network. And it is cross-sector network of, of leaders who are focused on these very set of issues. And they come from education, workforce, business, community-based organizations, increasingly economic development leaders from the state of California and from localities. You know, a little bit of HUD here and there. The thought is, is that you all can learn from each other, even if you are in different regions. In some ways, what unifies your work is this focus on economic advancement, economic mobility, inclusion, and growth. 
really feeling like you can do all those things at the same time and developing those cross-sector leadership skills uh, and sharing experiences. So we convened that group. I'd uh, encourage folks to check that out. Given the current state, we're still in the middle of the chaos of a pandemic. There is some light at the end of the tunnel. We do have work to do post-pandemic. Just in your findings and your conversations and your network, what do you think the world really of post-secondary education might look like for us a year from now, just based on your discoveries? You know, first of all, I think it's just, it's going to be a little frustrating because I think we're going to be recovering in fits and starts, even just in relation to the question you asked about coming back to school, you know, in the fall. So it'll take some time to get back into the full swing. So we need to have patience, you know, and enter with that mindset. And there are a lot of students who, I don't have to tell you, you, you know, you work with them who are parents. Their return to the classroom will really correspond to their ability to be able to feel stable in their home situation. So that could take a little while. Kind of goes hand in hand with their school reopenings, too, for in K-12. That aside, I think I would say that we can't forget and should double down on strategies that keep students, sorry to sound like a broken record here, but like really on a high-level learning trajectory with academic and social supports. Um, you know, I'll just give an example. In, in the before times, there was a lot of positive progress being made, you know, maybe a little unevenly, but on, on the whole, definitely a, moving in a positive direction on AB705, which was encouraging colleges to implement co-requisite supports to place and see more students succeed in college credit bearing courses versus getting placed and stuck in developmental ed sequences. I hope that work isn't lost. It'll be really imperative to continue progress on that front, especially as we're all trying to help make up for lost time and learning over the past year and a half that we've been sheltered in place. You know, again, this harkens back to an earlier theme. I think we shouldn't let go of some of the things that worked out well during the pandemic. For our Future Ready Network, we did a little podcast series of our own, Salvatrice, and, and interviewed as part of that um, <laughs> some community college students from the California community college system. And, Fantastic. You know, I think about all of them, you know, sort of said it wasn't perfect, but there are lots of things that I liked about, uh, surprisingly liked about the online learning modality. You know, it allowed them to rewind and make sure they really understood concepts, which they can do, you know, when it's um, asynchronous. They even said, like, I don't necessarily want to go back to being on campus all the time. I don't want to be online all the time either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, right. uh, you know, and we know that from the research, there, there can be drawbacks to that, especially for populations who need more, more support in the human touch. But I'm surprised I'm even saying this, you know, it's just there are you heard it from students themselves. As I said, it's just not losing the opportunity to incorporate the positive lessons and some of the Jerry Rick systems that grew out of the crisis and making them part of the new normal too. As we close here, thank you so much. This has been such a great, healthy conversation around your role, around your findings and your discoveries. What is next for Joel? What's Joel working on as far as programming that our listener might be interested in? Thank you for asking the question. There's several things that uh, I'm excited about. I'll just pick two just kind of randomly, but one, because viscerally I'm here in the state of California. So, and I miss my teammates who are usually in the same office with me down in downtown Oakland. And we support work 
around inclusive regional economic development, um, as I described earlier, given the invitation by you to do some thought experimentation in uh, San Gabriel Valley and about its economic recovery efforts. So that work is really, it's pretty new for us, really, really important. And the organization as a whole, it's, it's a new direction for us and one we're really excited about. For various reasons, the culture of California, the leadership right now in California, the assets in California, it's just a great place to try it out. We hope that it is something that has applicability to other regions throughout the country during a time of great need. So, you know, this old dog learning some new tricks. Um, but fortunately, I have a team that uh, really understands this stuff and is out there really trying to support communities and learning from it and capturing that and applying in other places. The other thing is it harkens back to this thread of work that I've done on uh, early college experiences and early career experiences is we're doing some research right now, which has entailed over 60 interviews with folks around the country about shifts we're seeing in what the end of high school looks like and its relationship to careers and to college, like really at some scale. So imagine- I like that. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, to see. And I think there is, it's born out of a sense of sort of disappointment with too many students who kind of leave even really high-performing high schools and, you know, kind of stumble either, you know, being admitted to a college, but never actually getting going, you know, or starting and not doing well. And then, you know, taking on some loan debt and not really having clear career goals to drive their college experience or enough of a career connection to really understand what they might want to do in their future and how to create plans that lead them on that path. So how do we design a system that automatically helps young people to navigate as a part of high school through their next steps by structuring it and structuring our education systems differently than they are now, getting them out of the silos, creating new kinds of institutions potentially that would re-envision the way we put grade levels together and structure young people's learning so that they have more of a natural connection to college and career. So that is research. We're going to put out a white paper about what we're finding at the end of June. So stay tuned for that. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And love to have you back and talk about your findings. I would love to come back. That's very intriguing work, for, especially for me too. And I know our listener out there who is in the world of academia, who's in, in industry, who's a student. This is how we really kind of create workforce systems at work is when we get to do a deeper dive and also just really uncovering, uncovering possibilities, reimagining pathways, reimagining systems as a whole and doing some design thinking around that is super intriguing to me. And I know that our listener is intrigued by it too. But thank you so much, Joel. This has been wonderful. I will take you up on that invitation to have you back on the show <laughs> because I'm definitely interested in hearing more about the findings and your continued work in this space, I think is amazing. It's been wonderful. If our listener would like to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Yes, please. First of all, thank you so much, Salvatrice. I really enjoyed our conversation and best of luck on your podcast here. Sounds really great. Like you have a great slate of folks to talk to. So it's a privilege to be among them. Thanks for the invitation. And if folks want to be in touch with me, please feel free to share my email address and can share it in the after show materials as well. But it's uh, jvargas, V as in Victor, A-R-G-A-S at J-F-F 
as in jobsforthefuture.org. And then our website is www.jff.org, where you can also find me and learn more about our work. Fantastic. We'll be sure to have those in the show notes. Thank you so much, Joel. Have a great day. I know you're off doing wonderful things and we will catch you soon. Thanks. You have a good day too, Salvatrice. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.